Hi, everyone. Today's episode is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is therefore appropriately sponsored by the Axiom Dashboard. I've been in education a long time, and I'm not sure I've ever encountered something so universally needed and useful, so simple, and with such immediate and measurable impact. How many times has someone said to you, if you really need my attention, text me? Well, the Axiom Dashboard is a software that provides real-time text communication regarding students' academic, attendance, and behavioral data between parents, counselors, teachers, and administrators. And get this, automatically translated to and from the student's home language. It's a complete equity game changer. In addition to this easy texting communication feature, as if that wasn't enough, The platform acts like the very best administrative assistant you could possibly imagine, quickly and effortlessly gathering all relevant information such as current grades, missing assignments, tardies and absences, and discipline activity into a report to serve as the basis for an intervention. And following the student intervention, parents and admin are updated and the intervention is documented into the school's student information system. Boom. Done. Remember the No Child Left Behind legislation in the 90s? Well, think of this as the No Student Falls Through Any Crack movement of the 2020s. The difference being that this is actually a fantastic idea and it works. So go to edcuration.com to learn more and reach out to a representative of the Axiom dashboard. This is a tool no school should be without. I can't say that the last president was necessary. Because whether people blame Donald Trump or not, his presidency pulled back the curtain on things that people thought we were beyond. No one would have ever thought we would have people storming the Capitol or people would be in the streets after a black man was killed by a police officer or women would still be marching for women's rights and LGBTQ rights. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking. Dr. Aaron Griffin is the editor and one of the authors of the recently released book, Challenges to Integrating Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Programs in Organizations. Dr. Griffin has been in education over 21 years, starting in Houston, Texas as a seventh grade English teacher. He evolved through multiple roles and eventually became an assistant principal while simultaneously earning his PhD in curriculum and instruction with an emphasis in urban education. He later served as the principal of Sierra High School in Colorado Springs for four years before accepting his current position with Denver Schools of Science and Technology, where he serves as the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. As part of this role, Dr. Griffin is also a research practitioner. His articles are published and presented around the country, and he and his wife consult with a cross-section of organizations through Prosperity Educators, their own consultancy. And Aaron made time 
amongst all of that activity to share his wisdom and experience on a blazing hot topic of diversity, equity, inclusion. So let's listen. So Aaron, you recently wrote a book, The Challenges to Integrating Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Schools, which was born out of your work in schools for several years and then with other organizations. Can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to write the book? Absolutely. I like to publish from the perspective of the practitioner for me. So thinking about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, I was wondering what would happen if we put together a book that talked about the challenges we face, but not just a research and academic book, but a book that is geared by practitioners Mm -hmm. ourselves. So I started reaching out to some of these colleagues. Mm -hmm. So I was very intentional and very specific. I first started reaching out to colleagues that I knew were practitioners during DEI. Almost half the chapters are by people who are either by themselves or in collaboration with others who are working right now in P12. Mm -hmm. So my intention was to create this platform of us telling the story from within. And then IGN Global is is an international brand. So what happened is, is that, of course, I started reaching out globally, mm-hmm. all over the world, everywhere, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere I can put it up. And I ended up getting submissions from Turkey, from, from Italy and different places, which was very exciting because now we have the perspective of practitioners or people who've done work with practitioners from all around the world. I had a wonderful editorial review team. I started pulling in all these individuals to help out. And that's mm-hmm. how the book came to be just really wanting us to tell the story from our perspective, almost like first-person narratives, but using research and theory to -hmm. tell that story. So what is your first-person narrative of the challenges that you have faced as a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner? The biggest challenges I have faced, because this practice for me started way back when I was a first-year teacher. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know I was doing it. You know, I walked Mm -hmm. in and said, I don't like the curriculum. I'm going to go be a superintendent so I can make the curriculum more culturally, more multicultural. Mm-hmm. I learned about cultural responsiveness in 2010 when I started my doctorate. I learned that that's the way I taught. Oh, I'm a culturally responsive teacher. So for mm-hmm. me, the biggest challenges I have faced, honestly, has been around trying to keep up with the current moment. What happens in equity, and I know our technology people might disagree. You know how they say technology changes like all the time? Mm-hmm. So does equity work. Okay. It is never the same. Every single day, it is something new. So one of the challenges that I have faced, and I know that we are facing, is the ever-changing social climate, the political climate, the racial climate, whatever inequity is out there. Mm-hmm. It changes because we recognize in this work that every person lives their reality very uniquely, even if it's a part of somebody else's reality. So two people can experience a fire at the exact same time, yet experience it totally differently based on their lived experiences. No matter what we do or what program or practice or framework or initiative we put in place, it may not work for the next situation. Right. So I've had challenges throughout my career where this year, this cultural response to practice worked. Next year, it didn't work because Mm. cultural responsiveness is not a list of strategies. People always say, hey, what cultural responsive strategies? No, they're not a list of strategies. You're either culturally responsive or you're not, or you're working towards becoming culturally responsive, using strategies to make them responsive to the children and the individuals you're working with. So it's not like a list of strategies because it's not going to work. 
in every single situation. So these are some of the challenges I've gone through, the, the change in demand, building capacity of staff, having to work with staff to shift ideologies and mindsets and social constructs, things like that. But it's well worth it because this is yeah. just every day. So it sounds a little bit like parenting. You know, you have your first child and you think, okay, these are, these are my strategies, right? Absolutely. They don't, and they don't work at all with the second child because it's a completely different person. So, so if there aren't strategies, how do you build capacity with staff? You got to start where staff are. I want to say it's just like teaching. When you teach children, you start where children are and take them where you want them to be. Mm-hmm. You don't start where you want them to be and then get upset because they can't reach that. They all start from the same place, awareness. Like, why is this work important? Like, what is the awareness you have of yourself as an individual, your identity markers, gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, religion, economic status? What traumas have you, have you been involved in? Who are you interacting with? These are the types of things that we have to start with. That way we know where a person is on their journey because if people haven't even unpacked their own privilege, and I'm talking about everybody, I'm not just talking about white privilege, I'm talking about all privilege, male privilege, heteronormative privilege. If we haven't unpacked our privilege, how am I going to be culturally responsive, culturally relevant, anti-racist, trauma-informed, multicultural, if I don't even know how I exist within this reality I live in? So you start from where the adult is and the teams are and the schools are. Start from where they are, see what they've already done, and then build on that and take them where they need to be. Like in DSST, we have 15 schools and all 15 of them are in different places. Some are doing cultural responsiveness because they've been doing this work for five and seven years. So what are the pieces of that? Because I'm imagining you do professional development. Yes. And so... I'm picturing, you know, teachers in a workshop together, but it's so much more than that. Yes. And like you said, when you first started teaching, you didn't even realize that you were a culturally responsive teacher because that was, that was not language we used. Right. Then. A director or vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion wasn't a role. No. That was not even a position that no. we had. And that's true for me, too, in my years of teaching, that that is a fairly recent development. Yes. So... Can you describe what the pieces of that work actually look like? Because my suspicion is, and I don't have data on this, but that DSST may be a little bit ahead of the curve, if not way ahead of the curve in this work compared to some other districts around the country. Okay. So I would say that DSST, our CEO and my boss would disagree. Oh, really? They would say we're nowhere. Oh, wow. Okay, so. <laughs> they, would, they would say, uh, we're not at the bottom, but we're closer between the bottom and the middle. And is that, so I, I'm sure they that's have a better what, take on that than I do. That's what they would say. I would, would say think? we're from the middle to the top. I'm not going to put okay. us at the top. I'm, I'm, I'm competitive. So in yeah. my mind, we're at the top. Yeah, okay. But to be fair, in my perception, we're further along than what our CEO and even my boss believes we are. Okay. Because they, their bar is so high and they want so much to occur, which is right. So to your, to your question about what does this work look like? So when I started at DSST, I was director of diversity equity inclusion. And my position came out of, what was it, two, three, four years prior of work. They started with, a, DSST started with a consultant for two years, then went to a larger consulting group 
started an equity working group, which included teachers, front office personnel, school leaders, home office personnel, and, and this consultant. And what happened is, is they decided that we need to have an equity department, a diversity, equity, inclusion department to own the work on the inside to hold the schools accountable. So you didn't have a predecessor? No. And was that state mandated or was no. that their decision? And I love that you asked that question because yeah. most of the time, and there is research on this, most of the time, and in my book, I put it's in the introduction. My role is created as a result of a lawsuit or something that has happened. If you look around the Starbucks, you look at all these countries, these companies, a lot of times that's the case. Now we have, and here's a prime example, March 1st, 2020, Glassdoor, the equity CEO, chief officer, diversity, vice president, whatever, had increased, I think they said like 65% increase in roles. I can't remember the exact number right now, but okay. it's in the book. And then when COVID-19 hit, those were some of the first positions that were wiped away. They dropped. Yeah. And then when George Floyd was killed, guess what happened? They went back up. They went back up. This is a reactionary position. So is it token? In many cases, it is token. Uh. It, is, it is performative. The reason why I accepted DSST's offer was because it wasn't token. It wasn't because I asked, I said, so why are y'all doing this? Was this a lawsuit? What happened? Well, they said, no, the equity working group, what is that? It was during the interview process. And this group of people worked with the National Equity Project and said, we need a DEI officer to own this work on the inside. There was no lawsuit. There was no mandate. So when I came in, I came in fresh on the foundation they had already laid, Okay, which was the eight paradigms. We have eight paradigm shifts. We have our educational equity definition. And then we also had a shift in our core values language. So I came in May 1st, 2018, after that work had already been done. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, let me just build on what they're doing. So I brought my expertise in from a professional development point of view of starting where staff is. Because when I was a principal at Sierra High School in Colorado Springs, we did a five-month session, five-month series on cultural competency. And I did the same thing for our new teachers down in District 2 in Colorado Springs. Well, we started way at the beginning of what this stuff is, and then we started going to practice. So when I put that in DSST, along with our coordinators and our whole team, human capital, sitting down with school directors. So again, getting back to what that looks like, the first thing I did was sit down and talk to school directors and school leaders and say, hey, what does the work look like before I got here? What did y'all do? What does your PD look like? How do you put it on your calendar? What would you like to see? Once I collected all of those interviews and all of that information from those individuals and established trust with them by making recommendations here and there, I developed, I started partnering with each of the schools, not every school yet, but each school who wanted this work. And we partnered together and delivered the PDs together. It would be okay. me and the school director, me and a, a, a teacher leader, me and an administrator. I never did them by myself mm -hmm. because my goal was to walk away. And they have representation to talk through the development. So I'm expected to partner with every department on development for our schools. Would you say that that's a key to success? That is the key to success because what happened is over two years, by doing that and building capacity like a trainer of trainer, this year I have not, I have yet to lead any sessions on any campus or even co-facilitate. Every campus has its own equity working group now. 
and equity liaison, and some of them even have student working groups, student equity working groups. And these campuses are leading their own PD. Last week, one of our schools had a parent night where the students came in, the middle school students taught their parents about their student affinity groups and put their parents in affinity groups and led the affinity groups for their parents. Mm. See, that's what capacity building does. And that's, that's the model. So now my role has morphed more into a policy and mm-hmm. the decision-making position and less of the on-the-ground work. And with everything that's going on in the country, now my role has transitioned even further out into the national community. Hence my interview with you. I presented at the Diverse Charter Schools Coalition last week. So now I'm meeting with many more people with similar roles across the country because we're all trying to figure out what to do. What are the pieces of the work? Yeah. Yeah. So for districts or schools or any organization really for whom this work is new, or maybe has been more of a token up to this point, could this book serve as, as sort of a guidebook in some ways? Could yes. it help them determine their practices and policies? And that's the thing. I, I've said this before, that in this book, there is something for everyone. Okay. Because there is a chapter on how to develop my role, the okay. diversity officer. There's a chapter on how to be culturally responsive with social-emotional learning which is the big thing right now with kids and trauma. But the problem we have is social emotional learning has a white lens on it Mm -hmm. because the researchers of that were all white people. These authors are saying, Hey, that's wonderful, but our kids are showing up totally different. So you have to make it culturally responsive. There is a chapter on equity and inclusion with students with emotional needs, emotionally disturbed needs. There's also chapters on how to lead out front. Mm-hmm. One called Leading Boldly, where that chapter is, hey, you have to be courageous. You have to be intentional. You have to be strategic. There's a chapter. There's two chapters from Turkey. One chapter is on women in the communications industry. Mm-hmm. There's a chapter by a white woman who identifies as a Muslim who wears a hijab. Okay. And what she has had to deal with from a gender and a religious and a cultural point of view. So it's something in there for everyone that any organization, not just schools. We'll be right back. Hi there. My name is Patrick Irarrazabal Correa, more commonly known as Mr. Patrick. And I'm proud to roll out our Axiom dashboards for teachers, counselors, and administrators. Our unique dashboards permit school staff to communicate with parents via simple text messages in the parents' home language. This robust translating ability is combined with our complete multi-tiered system of supports. Our dashboards identify students who are struggling in the areas of academics, attendance, and behavior. No other program offers this powerful MTSS tool, and we encourage you to reach out to us for a demonstration and to discuss implementing the Axiom dashboards at your school site. Thank you. Yes, the Axiom dashboard is amazing. You must check it out. Tell your TOSA, your instructional coach, your administrator, or district leader that you have found a thing that will make everyone's life easier and better. Because don't we all need a little easier and better right now? So go to edcuration.com and we'll get you hooked up. And now, back to our interview. So you said that your director, your Supervisor, the people who are over you in the district, 
that you don't necessarily have exactly the same take on where you're at. What are your indicators of success? Like, how do you know that you're on the right track? I love that you asked that (laughs) because this being a new department, the first thing we had to figure out is what in the world do we measure? Do we measure academic success? Well, that's not fair because we haven't done the work to see the impact academically. There's been some work done, but it hasn't been targeted strategic work, just work, okay? How do we measure the culture? Do we look at suspensions? What do we look at to where we know we've had an impact? So we had to be very, very careful. So the first thing we did was look at the number of sessions that were being conducted in the network as a whole. So my first year, PD, development. So my first year, we were, we were a little over 26 sessions, which at the time, the network was like, wow. People were like, man, we had 26 sessions. And not just at the same schools, more schools had gotten involved. And then the next year, the goal was to have 38 sessions. We had 71 last year, even with COVID, because we transitioned to virtual. Mm-hmm. And the sessions not only included development on campuses, The sessions now included school director development, school director and trainer development, associate assistant school director development, home office development. This year, the goal is 88. As of January 4th, we were at 76 already. And that's because every single school has had at least three different sessions that they ran themselves. The advanced leadership cohort is getting trained. All of our curriculum curriculum coaches. Our deans and our mental health supports are getting development. Our board of directors, the people who hire the CEO, they've done two sessions and they're about to start small group sessions. They've already done two. I led the last one. So it's a lot about creating structures so that we can be having the conversations that we need to have. Precisely. So there's the sessions. And then after the sessions, then we said, okay, what else do we need? We need a resource hub. And we need to know that people are accessing the resource hub. So someone asked me, how did y'all get to 71 sessions? How are y'all getting these sessions? So we are recording our sessions so people can go in and do their own development. And then we push for personal development because I have a national network of colleagues. I'm able to get free webinars and free podcasts or free uh, virtual development sessions that I send to schools. And like I just did one Saturday with our Godi Muhammad Cultivating Genius. I went to her session Saturday. Somebody just told me today they're going to a session on 360 inclusion conversations. Our STEM, the director of STEM, is going to, going to that one. Okay. So this is, this is how we're getting all this work done because now it's multifaceted. We have staff members that are having affinity lunches where they have lunch together and have racial or gender or sexual or political conversations around equity and the impact of the community. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We didn't ask them to do that. They did it on their own. So this is, these are some of the, the indicators of success. And we just did our mid-year survey and we have the highest, except for one, we have the highest mid-year survey results for the six equity questions we ask. And one of the ones I'm very proud of is the one that says in the past 12 months, I have not had to hide my identity defending in DSSD. That is one of our higher ones this year. So those are our measures. The network post survey, those are our measures of success. But for next year, we're going to be measuring impact. Now we want to put it on the student surveys 
so students can tell us what their perceptions are of the equity work. And we're starting to look at discipline disparities now and academic disparities because guess what? Our humanities team is now doing cultural responsive development and they're putting it inside the curriculum. So now we can start to see the overall impact at the end of next year. So that's, that's helpful because that's actually re- leading right into my next question, which was how are we assessing how this is moving from theory to practice in the actual classroom with the students? What kinds of shifts would you look for if you were doing learning rounds or something? Absolutely. So I'm glad you said that because our humanities department last spring, right before COVID, had two equity audit sessions with me. Okay. And from those equity audit development sessions, they created their own equity audit tool that they now use in the classroom. So helpful. Yes. So they're piloting that this year to see what is showing up and what development the teachers are going to need, language arts and science and social studies, because the STEM teachers are adding cultural responsive and anti-racist pedagogy inside the STEM classrooms right now. So these folks are developing tools to start to measure this because the goal is next year to fully implement these things. But the thing is, you don't just jump in and do it. Yeah. Like some people want to go ahead and start measuring. Like you can't measure what has not been taught. That's why we have children who are not being successful because they haven't been taught. So then they're not successful. And the general public says, oh, these children can't learn. Well, maybe they weren't taught. Maybe they weren't taught. So yeah. why would I measure a teacher on a practice that we have not developed them in? So, yeah. That's so refreshing. Can you give just an idea of some of the things that would be on an audit? Oh, yes. And remember when I told you that cultural responsiveness is not a set of strategy? Yes. Okay. Here are some of the things you would see on the audit. Teacher-student interaction. Peer-to-teacher interaction. Peer-to-peer interaction. Time, hands-on, manipulatives. People would say, wait a minute. Aren't those multiple response strategies and Kagan strategies? Okay. But they're also culturally responsive, depending on how and when you use them. What you see are research-based strategies on this audit because those are the identified strategies that best meet the need of our kids. That's what makes it culturally responsive. Okay. And then they also have on that checklist, I believe, student represented in the lesson. Student aspects are represented in the text. In other words, what they're saying is when I come in here and look and there is a mentor text or something being taught, students can see themselves in the lesson. Dr. Geneva Gay and Dr. Lance and Billings on cultural relevance, they didn't give you a list of strategies. They gave you exemplars of what this looks like. Of what it looks like. And the outcomes. What is it, the dream keepers? And the other one is cultural responsive teaching. You read those two books, they don't give you strategies. They don't give you a list. What they do is they tell you what are the characteristics of these teachers. Yes. They don't give you a check off of list. That's not what they do. I wasn't familiar with these books, so I looked them up and you might want to write them down for your PLC. Dr. Geneva Gay is a professor at the University of Washington College of Teaching and her 2001 book, Culturally Responsive Teaching, Theory, Practice and Research, won the Outstanding Writing Award from the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. This is just one of her many books and articles on the topic. And Gloria J. Ladson Billings is known for her work in the fields of culturally relevant pedagogy and critical race theory. She's now retired. She's the former Kellner Family Distinguished Professor of Urban Education 
in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her significant body of work includes the book, The Dream Keepers, Successful Teachers of African-American Children. So you seem pretty encouraged about what's happening Mm -hmm. in DSSD. Can you give us a snapshot or a success story from a classroom that has made you feel hopeful and made you feel like you're making progress? Last year, the fall before COVID, there were two separate student conferences. They didn't Mm -hmm. call it this. And what they did is they took the whole day on the high school side and they developed, they brought in expert panelists. One was around equity. LGBTQIA, immigration status. We had like five different groups. And kids in the classrooms, in the civics classrooms, came in. We told who we were. They had already designed questions for us. And then they asked other questions on top of that. The reason why I count that as a success, my first year, that would have never happened. It would never happen. It would have been bad. Because the kids were, there was a tension, there was a racial tension that was happening. And an equity tension that was happening that they were starting to overcome. So for that to happen, and for me to watch some of these kids who wouldn't even talk to each other the year before because of economic divides, were now in agreement and were working together, I said, wow. And for the same school to be now at a point where their middle school side is now leading affinity groups with middle schoolers. That's amazing. So that's a success story. And that's what gives me hope. And that's just one. Right. There are multiple stories all around our DSST network. There are stories around some of the work I've done with organizations or uh, some of the organizations I consult with where they're telling me, oh, my God, after the last session, this is what happened. The staff went back and dove into the curriculum. And based on what you did, they were able to tell us which parts of the curriculum are systemically oppressive by the language it's using. So now they're rewriting the language, not the curriculum, but the language in the curriculum. So, yeah. Do you have a pretty diverse population, student-wise and staff-wise? We're in DSST? Yeah. We are just over, we are right around 75% students of color. We're at around 30% staff of color. So just like it is on the national landscape. In October of 2020, Ed Curation hosted a conference for educators focused on anti-racist curriculum instruction. Dr. Griffin was one of the presenters at that conference, and his session was titled, All the Worlds Become an Anti-Racist Stage, hinting that there was a lot of performing going on in reaction to the police killings, racial violence, and unrest in the country. It's not that it's disingenuous to do book studies, put signs in the yard, black out our social media feeds, and even protest. These things aren't the wrong responses, and they are important forms of expression and support but they don't typically affect real and lasting change all by themselves. For white educators like myself, figuring out how to move beyond performative responses to the real work is definitely our work to do. But as the DEI expert in the room, I wanted to know if Aaron could speak to white educators. Many of us avoid the work because we're afraid to misstep and we'd like some advice about how to step gracefully into the conversation dig in alongside our colleagues and students of all races. So I asked him. Number one, don't use book studies and reading as the final answer. What tends to happen is folks do book studies Mm. and they walk away thinking they're fixed. I participated. That's, you just read a book. 
Number two, you have to unpack your own privilege, identity, and work that you need to do. You really need to take inventory of what you don't know and why you don't know it. It's one thing not to acknowledge, hey, I didn't know. It's a whole nother thing to acknowledge why you didn't know. Why is it you weren't taught that? Why is it that you don't have those conversations? Or that you aren't in circles. I was about to get to that. Look around who you hang around. Look who's come to your house. Unpack who you are from an identity perspective, economics, race, gender. How do I situate in this reality? Mm -hmm. Why is it I didn't know that? Why don't I know that? And why is it that that doesn't bother me? I asked Aaron this same question in a previous interview, and I found his answer so inspiring. So I want to share it here as an addendum. He said to me, first of all, Christy, stop waiting until you're not afraid. You're going to feel afraid and you're going to get it wrong. We've already gotten it wrong and we've been getting it wrong for a long time. Don't be afraid to get it wrong. Be afraid to do nothing. It's like Nike. You just have to do it and get used to being uncomfortable. If you're comfortable, you're not doing the work. So in thinking about being afraid, but being afraid for the right reasons, I wanted to know Aaron's thinking about the challenge of facilitating hard conversations with diverse groups of students following the kinds of racially fueled tragedies and upheavals we experienced in 2020 and prior. A lot of times, and I'm saying we, because teachers of color aren't prepared either. We are not prepared for that. We have to know that we're not prepared for that. Sometimes you don't know, but you still have to engage. You can't opt out because opting out shows a lack of support and empathy and sympathy and you lose trust. So even as simple as saying, it is hard right now. I know it's hard for many of you and many of us, and many of us really just don't know what to say or what to do right now. So just being honest. Just be I, honest. I don't, like, I, I don't I want to create a space. I want to create a space where we can work through this together. And hopefully, as an organization, we would have already said there are resources coming. Or the teacher can say, I'm going to reach out to some colleagues that I know that may be able to support, not help, support me in this space. Mm-hmm. Just acknowledge that you just don't know. But then the next time you show up, make sure you know mm-hmm. or know something. Because I don't know, and not doing is the epitome of privilege. In thinking about unpacking our privilege and showing up to each new hard conversation a little smarter and with new skills, let's circle back to our initial purpose here, Aaron's book. You can find challenges to integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in organizations on Amazon. But if you, like I, prefer not to put more money in Jeff's pocket, you can purchase directly through the publisher at IGI Global or through Google Books. And this is not Dr. Griffin's only recent release. He is a crazy, busy, and prolific guy who, according to his wife, writes for relaxation and therapy. The two of them just released a prosperity journal. My wife and I just uh, published our first journal based on our consultancy, Prosperity Educators, and it's called the 90-Day Prosperity Journal, which is a four-in-one journal where you can have your to-do list, your great list, your great ideas as they pop up, list all your wins. We always talk about listing a win like this interview. Tonight in in the journal, I use it as well. (laughs) I actually write my wins down, so I count this as a win. 
And then you have 90 days of letters to yourself where every night you write a letter to yourself and talk to yourself. Very therapeutic to journal. And then the books that are about to come out within this, the next six months, six to nine months, I have a book called Race Mentoring and P12 Education Educators, Practitioners Contributed to Scholarship, where the entire book is based on practitioner scholarship, P12 practitioners, and how our scholarship can, I just did the preface for it, can allow us to be social justice agents, revolutionaries of change, gain mentorship for scholarship, and also be transformative mm-hmm. and be advocates. And then the book after that, they'll be out hopefully in the next six months is National where Narratives on the African-American Principalship, where all these folks that are principals and assistant principals, we have 36 chapters, 36 individuals wrote chapters about their experience as an African-American Black administrator okay. going through that pipeline. Is there anything that you'd really love to talk about or share with our listeners that I haven't asked you? Yes. A question I continue to get, when do I think we're going to get back to normal? There is no back to normal. There is no new normal. This is the result of decisions and indecisions and non-decisions that were made. Where we are right now as a country and everything we experienced in 2020 is a reckoning that was due. It was due. And... I don't, I'm not Republican or Democrat. I know the way I voted, but I'm not either. Mm-hmm. But I can't say that the last president was, was necessary because whether people blame Donald Trump or not, his presidency pulled back the curtain on things that people thought we were beyond. Mm-hmm. No one would have ever thought we would have people storming the Capitol or people would be in the streets after a black man was killed by a police officer. Or women would still be marching for women's rights and I LGBTQ mean, rights. This is our new reality. Yeah, it's, we have. Well, to, no, this is our reality, not our new reality. I mean, this it is, is our reality. New reality. I know. There yeah. came a point where during the last year, I just had to say to my kids, "Listen, we have to stop looking at this as something that we're just going to get through. Mm-mm. This is life. This is we, life. This is our life. Yes. And it it can't be that." We wait for it to be over so that we can restart our life. This is our life. Everybody's looking for the reset button. Yeah. There, there is no reset there's button. There's no reset button. One of the things it did, it, COVID-19 did, it, it motivated me. Black Lives Matter, it motivated me. Because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to come out of this better. I'm going to use it as an opportunity and every bit of sadness and anger and frustration, I'm going to put it on paper. Dr. Aaron Griffin obviously did that. You can find him in all of his books and services and resources at drarongriffin.com. That's G-R-I-F-F-E-N.com or at prosperityeducators.com. Aaron is also on Twitter and in LinkedIn and available through Denver Schools of Science and Technology. He is not hard to find, but you can find all of these links in our episode notes on Podbean, where our podcast is hosted However, you can find this episode pretty much anywhere you get your podcast. Take advantage of Aaron's resources to help you dive in, in spite of fear, and do the work to get smarter and to better serve our students in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. One tool that can also help with that is the Axiom Dashboard. And school counselor Kelly Crow had this to say. When I discovered that, a couple things happened. One, it immediately brought up the communication level with parents through text messaging. So they were able to, during this pandemic time too, we just like got cut off 
from everyone. And a lot of our parents, most of our parents do not use email, but they do, everybody has a phone. And so we were able to send not just text messages, but surveys to find out how our students were coping with being cut off from their school. And then the other way that we've been using Axiom is for counselors to immediately see kids that need different levels of intervention. And it's just been amazing to all of a sudden on your screen, it will just pop up. Okay, these are students that are showing missing assignments that are showing signs of needing another level of intervention, either tier one, tier two or tier three. You could find the Axiom dashboard along with pretty much every kind of imaginable instructional resource and many you haven't even imagined at edcuration.com. That's E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, share, and leave us a review. We love to hear from you. And if you'd like to share a favorite resource or topic on the Ed Curation podcast, reach out to us through our website. Thanks again for joining us today on the Ed Curation podcast, where we're reshaping learning.